after a bunch of conversations with clients and projects evolved, I realized companies really struggle with pricing and there's no formal degrees in pricing. Generally, it's the kind of thing that most companies aren't touching on a regular basis. And so the internal operators in the company aren't really skilled when it comes time to make that change. Hi, welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media, and I will be both your host and bartender today. I had an opportunity to sit with Dan Belkowski, who is the founder of Product Tranquility. And we talked today all about pricing and packaging. And surprising to me, this is not something that always falls under product marketing. In fact, it's often a very robust and heated discussion among the C-suite. So if you touch pricing at all, this is the episode that you want to listen to. So grab a drink and join me as I speak with Dan from Product Tranquility. Hey, Dan, welcome to SaaS Half Full. Great to be here, Lizzie. Thank you for having me. I am excited to talk with you in doing a little pre-episode stalking. I found out we have a mutual connection and I'm saying it here, Travis Knapp, you are a mutual connection way back. Dan, you were at Iowa State and you all were, sounds like fraternity brothers. So usually you have like a mutual work connection. This one is a personal one, which I love. Travis, uh, if you're listening, hope you're doing well. Yes, I will. I will tag him when I share this and he's going to be so confused. Did we send you a cocktail kit, Dan? You did. I am sipping on the Feliz and Fuego. It is a a holiday drink. Quite interesting. It's got almost like if you have ever had one of those chocolate favorite lollipops. That's kind of the closest I could. Interesting. Give it is to a it. very deep, like caramely red color. So that is interesting to me. Well, Dan, I'm excited to chat with you. We are talking all things SaaS pricing, SaaS packaging things that you see go horribly wrong, things that you see companies do well. And then we also wanted to tackle maybe some things that you're seeing or advice around this just awesome time that SaaS founders are having right now with their businesses. So I do want to get into that. But before we do, I want to give our listeners an understanding of a little bit of your background. And we do want to know about product tranquility and what that does. But how did you even get into B2B SaaS to start? Was this an ad by accident thing? Is it recent? Have you been in it a while? What's your story? Yeah, I spent my entire 20-year career to this point in the software space. I started out more on what we might term the value creation side than the value capture side that I'm on now. So first as an engineer, then engineering management. Ultimately, I became a lot more fascinated by how the products we built created value for customers and turned into dollars and cents for the business. And this interest led me to pursue my MBA. I didn't realize it then. I was quite lucky. My program had foundational classes in pricing as well as a bunch of marketing stuff. And I got experience in that right away in my MBA internship. I did a internship in product marketing out for a very successful Silicon Valley company and help them determine that freemium is not a good idea. Well, we could have pit in that, maybe touch on that more later, but generally do not recommend freemium. I worked on that for that summer, helped that CEO make that decision. After that, moved into the world of product management, product strategy again, through software the entire time. Back in the day, we used to sell on-premise perpetual license transactions. And I was there for the rise of, of software as a service that we call SaaS, the subscription model and cloud-based deployment models. And now I have the privilege of helping founder CEOs and their teams build sustainable business and helping them get their products in the hands of as many customers as possible. 
I saw that journey as well. We do PR for B2B software companies now, B2B SaaS. But literally, we when we started our agency, we were shipping media discs. I mean, we're, we're sending physical discs, which is pretty wild. But tell us about Product Tranquility. You're the founder. What does that company do? Why do you all exist? Yeah, we help mostly high volume B2B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. And how are you defining high volume? Yeah, so most other people may use a term like product-led growth. I've, we might touch on this later, but I've generally found that product-led growth is a newer term and not everyone is aligned on the exact definitions of it. Back in the day, we used to call it a high volume velocity model. So this is, you know, instead of selling to the Fortune 100, seven, eight figure deals, you're much more concerned with you know, ASP or ACV in the $10,000 range and trying to find tens or hundreds of thousands of those type of customers. So that looks very different from a go-to-market perspective and from a pricing perspective than you know, if you're say, Palantir selling to the you know, major government agencies and the, and the Fortune 100, uh, than if you're Zoom trying to sell to every SMB and mid-market company on the planet. So this is interesting. So I'm going to say you, you work with PLG companies that you don't like that term PLG who oftentimes have freemium models and you don't like freemium models. So this is going to be very interesting conversation. So the pricing and packaging was your jam. Was there like a moment or when did you know that this was this was your thing? Yeah, it was a blend of interest, experience, and market need. And I think ultimately, as any business owner knows, market need is way more important than your interest or experience. You got to go serve problems that are out in the market and not just try to convince people that they need to care about the problem that you want to solve. It's a much easier way to go. That you audience is smart. I'm sure they realize that and have fights inside their own companies fighting that battle every day. Ultimately, I started my consulting practice in many areas of the product management and product marketing realms I would help with from product strategy, customer retention, market segmentation, and pricing. And after a bunch of conversations with clients and projects evolved, I realized companies really struggle with pricing and there's no formal degrees in pricing. Generally, it's the kind of thing that most companies aren't touching on a regular basis. And so the internal operators in the company aren't really skilled when it comes time to make that change. And so I saw a lot of people basically ignoring a really powerful growth lever versus not doing anything. Or when they were trying to do it, they were stymied in this. Pricing tends to be a political hot potato. It can be. It's one of these things that uh, everyone at the every C-suite executive at the table has a very strong opinion. All right, they, <laughs> None of them are pricing experts, but they're all pricing experts if you get my drift, especially. Yeah. And so if only everyone else would see my way of doing it, uh, but their ability to really move that conversation forward with either the right kinds of frameworks or terminology or the right data is really limited. And so then it turns into heated arguments and then nothing really happening. So I realized this was an area that people needed help with. Who are you finding most often has the autonomy or owns these pricing discussions? Unfortunately, it's one of these orphaned things. Now, so I have a point of view on who should own it. Yes, uh, I would like to know that. <laughs> as far as the the market broadly, B2B SaaS, I think the best data I saw from this, and this might be a little bit out of date, but I think OpenView Partners had uh, some numbers, which was about looking at SaaS companies, less than 100 million in ARR, about 60% of those, it was owned by the CEO. And then the rest of that 40% was sort of evenly split between finance sales and, and product. And in that data, I don't think they made a distinction between product management, product marketing. So we'll just assume that 
you know, those are evenly split 10, 10, 10 across those four different groups. And really, we don't see full time pricing and packaging teams. No. I think even in that open view data, uh, even IPO stage companies, so like 100 million ARR IPO stage, only 50% of them had either a pricing team or a pricing person. And so and generally, I wouldn't recommend you have a full-time, only full-time pricing person until you're about 200 million in revenue or above and at least multi-product. So until then, product marketing, I believe, is usually the, the person who should own it. But this is one of the things I've been harping on quite a bit is that companies just there's no one who owns it and there's no process. And so this is one of the things I, I try to help founders understand is that they need to give this as ownership uh, inside of the company. Otherwise, nothing will happen. And then it being a political hot potato, you run into all these problems as soon as there are other parts of the organization where if something is being left aside, you might have a spunky IC or someone say, I'm, I'm going to pick up the football and run with it. Like this will be fine. Uh, they're going to get electrocuted as soon as they do it with pricing because there's just so much tension around the topic. Uh, so it really needs some formalization around there like we have for product management. My assumption was that it was usually owned by a product marketing manager. I'm going to use that as a you know, general title. And I'm surprised to hear that it is not and that it is such a contentious conversation amongst the C-suite. Why is it so heated? If you think about the pricing and packaging, right, every position at that executive table has a different incentive that they're trying to move forward, right? Ultimately, we hope that everyone's aligned and trying to do what's in the best interest of the company. But then within your functional domain, you're trying to move things forward. For example, the CFO is probably really concerned about reporting their gross margins to the board and making sure that burn rate is acceptable and being able to tell a compelling story to the next round of investors, or if you're a public company, to your public investors. Sales uh, is very much transactional driven. And so they're going to want to make sure that pricing doesn't get in the way of them meeting their quota for the quarter or their team's quota. You've got marketing who is trying to maximize conversions and, and awareness and maybe using pricing, discounting promotions as part of their demand generation strategy. And so there's components there. Product is really trying to deeply understand customer value, but then can get a little bit lost when it comes to the go to market side and and can't really you know tell the story you know fully to okay how do we how do we commercialize this and then you've got all the other you know, COOs got revenue operation systems and we can do this and we can't do that and this is how our bill, our old billing system works and so there's going to be limits that they have and so when you add that mix together it it becomes quite a minefield to navigate and and also people tend to speak very different languages. They don't have a common set of terms. People think in terms of purely price level. And I know at some point we may want to touch on talking about yep. pricing and packaging, but really if you're having a one dimensional negotiation just on price level, uh, it's quite limiting, right? It, it really limits the ability to, to make progress and get everyone what they, what they need. Yeah. And I do want to, to tackle pricing and packaging because you keep saying them together, but there's pricing. And there's packaging and they work together. So just talk us through your thoughts around defining and, and maybe clearing up for those that are listening, how you distinguish those two things. So pricing and packaging go together. And so often what we talk about, it, companies will come to me and ask for help. And one of their initial questions is like, hey, we've got this thing. Is it, should it be 
$20 a user, $100 a user, $19.95, share prices ended at nines. And like, those are interesting, fun questions, but they're, they're really the, the wrong end. Uh, when it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge determines your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success and how you charge is this element of packaging, right? So let me use a quick analogy here. Uh, I was, I'm assuming most of your audience is familiar with McDonald's because pricing and packaging exists outside of the software world, except you have much more degrees of freedom that you can use in the uh, software world. So, but if you think about like McDonald's, so I, I buy a Big Mac. So there's a price for that Big Mac. Let's say it's $3. So the $3 is the price level, but my price metric is a price per Big Mac. It's also a per or perpetual transaction. So this would be a price model. Now, I don't know how you'd make a hamburger subscription. I know Taco Bell is playing with subscription. So you could be a, a Taco Bell subscribing member. And apparently you get a taco every day. We could argue whether or not that's a value that anyone wants to take. Uh, Correct. <laughs> but so so we've got a couple elements where I already mentioned, right? So we've got the, the price level. It's the price of the Big Mac, the price metric. You're paying per Big Mac. Uh, you, it's a perpetual transaction. So I pay you once. It's not, I don't have this ongoing flow of payments. and then. You can think of uh, also McDonald's has this idea of a value meal. So I can get my hamburger with fries and a drink. So this is what we call an offer configuration or a bundle. Uh, and then uh, also have this idea of a price fence. So price fence is how do I have two different customers pay different prices for effectively the same product? And if you think about uh, the supersizing my value meal or just changing the size of my drink, right, my, my price per ounce of Coke that I'm paying at McDonald's is going to change and that would be about volume-based price events. So that's sort of a simple food example, but we have these four elements plus a price level, four elements of packaging price level that exists in the, in the software world. And again, going back to the conversation we were just having about, you know, if you're having a one-dimensional conversation of, well, a CEO thinks it should be $20 a user and, and sales is saying it should be $15 a user, right? If that's the only tool that they're able to discuss, they're, They've left a, a large amount of different you know, colors on their palette, right? They're painting in black and white, and they're never going to be able to paint a beautiful sunset if they only have a conversation at that level. Oh, and I, I do want to underscore what you said, which is who and how you charge is what determines success, not what you charge. And I, I imagine that there are listeners that are like sitting there like, well, shit, <laughs> my last discussion about pricing was should it end in 59 or 99 or on the whole dollar? And that's the only thing that we've talked about. Uh, so they're probably like, man, I, I need to think more about this. I want to to um, maybe switch directions here because I, I've listened to and watched some of your past interviews and you talked quite a bit about your thoughts around product market fit, your thoughts around premium models, et cetera. You've actually said that you hate the term product market fit. And that is a term that is used no less than a thousand beats per minute uh, in this world. So unpack this for me. Oh man, I love stepping into a holy war. Uh, so product market fit and it's ilk. And I, I think there's a few terms like this, you know, product-led growth, agile, digital transformation, Generally, I dislike using terms that come with it the illusion of communication. So what is an illusion of communication? It's a bunch of people can get in a room and say something to each other and everyone walks out being like, I'm really glad we got on the same page about that. 
And yet everyone walks out with an entirely different idea of what the conversation was about and what you discussed. And I feel like product market fit has this problem in spades where nobody could give me a really concrete definition. Well, people might be able to give me a definition of it, but it's not the same definition I heard in the conversation before that or the conversation before that or the conversation before that. I think generally it's more of a useful term for venture capitalists. And as I understand it, the, the origin of the term came, I think it was Andy Ratcliffe, the uh, guy who founded Wealthfront. He was in the venture capital world way back in the day. And I think it was because, because startup teams and founding teams are, they will screw something up almost guaranteed. The only way startups succeed is if they build a product where the market needs it so much that it literally, no matter the failures of the founding team, will pull that product into success. That was sort of the original, I think, usage of product market fit. But it's effectively useless as an operator. So there's no clear, again, definition, no clear way that people have to measure. And look, I've, I've heard different measurement techniques. There's a Sean Ellis test or the, you know, there's a, it's your LTV to CAC ratio or your, your magic number or whatever. Right. But it's like, those are all things. Why don't we just refer to those things versus saying product market fit? Because I may be referring to 30 different metrics when I say the term. And if I have a different set of calculations, right, we're again, not going to be on the same page. Also, it's rear looking. And I find as an operator, it's either you have it or you're not. It's a one or a zero. You have product fit or not. And it's like looking at revenue. I never recommend that product leaders or business leaders in general look at revenue, I guess, unless you're a CFO preparing to talk to Wall Street and trying to build a story around why your revenue is what it is. But in terms of trying to plan what you're going to do next, revenue is in the past. It told you what already happened, right? Like I need to be looking at other you know things. And I think product market fit has that same problem where it's like, well, yeah, okay, you're that's kind of defines the state you're in today, but it doesn't tell you what you need to do you know, to, to go get it. And so I find it's generally better for you know, venture capitalists as a fun way to be able to tell startups, no, they won't invest. It's like, no, you don't have product market fit yet. But as an operator, it doesn't really leave them with a whole lot of options of, of you know, the next step to take. Yeah. In my opinion, I've always thought of when I, I hear a VC say, well, we we invest in companies after they've demonstrated product market fit. What I hear is, okay, they found an audience, a group of people or titles of people that find value in their product and will buy it. I mean, that's like how I distill it down, which I mean, for any, any business to survive, you have to find that. Do you find that limiting a, and then how often do you recommend someone revisit, right? These, if it's a pricing, it could be a pricing leader, but could be a marketer, could be a founder, revisit their target. So I've, I've established I product market fit. This is my, you know, my ICP. How often should we be revisiting that and either to narrow it or expand it? I, I still don't know what to do with that, right? Because, you know, you may have customers, right? Why not just pick the more clear metric of like, you've acquired your first 100 customers. Wouldn't that be clearer to everyone than talking about product market fit? Or you've acquired 1,000 customers or you've acquired 1,000 customers and they've, you know, 80% of them have stayed with you for a year. VCs are, you know, and founders are generally metric happy people. We could all improve our communication by just being more precise about what we're all talking about uh, versus this in inferring through this vague term. Second question that you asked is on when do people need to improve or, or expand their uh, ideal customer profile? Yeah. So ultimately, I think it's it's more often the case that I see that 
companies don't have a clearly defined I- ICP and or it's not widely shared throughout the organization. What tends to happen is there's a couple of different scenarios. One is there's this general idea of, well, we sell to everyone, right? Or at least be billed for everyone. And then we give to our poor marketing team, go position it for this set of customers, which I think is a terrible strategy. And, and if you're, I feel bad for you if you're in a marketer in that kind of company, because that I never see that work. What that's kind of an underlying symptom of is that, well, then maybe marketing has some idea of ICP or persona because they have to figure out how they're going to spend their demand generation dollars and you know, figure out what keywords you know, are appropriate, et cetera. But that's not then shared by the engineering and product team. And so that's highly dysfunctional because then you have a team building a product for ostensibly a different customer than we're trying to market and sell to it. So, so no one's going to be happy. Like, like no one's going to make their number when those leads come in the door. They're not going to buy. The product's not going to be right for them. So it's going to be sadness all around. The other thing I see is that ideal customer profiles or, or customer segments are defined at a firmographic level. And so what this tends to cause is so firmographics, meaning, you know, the number of employees, amount of revenue, geography, industry. Uh, the problem there is, you know, then these ICPs don't tend to drive decisions, right? They're inside the company. It's like they're not used, for example, by sales to quickly qualify a customer and run them through a different demo script or marketing to show a specific customer a set of solutions that are, are relevant to, to their industry or for product managers to say, okay, well, we're not going to build these sets of things because that doesn't apply to the ICP that we're uh, developing for. So it doesn't affect design decisions. And fundamentally it affects pricing because it, it doesn't dictate why different customers buy. Like just right. because one customer is in mid-market and one's an enterprise, maybe that's relevant, but it's much more likely that you know, there's other contextual factors, there's outcome factors that are much more important to driving why customers are looking for a solution, why other solutions aren't viable, why they value your solutions a certain way. And ultimately the, the value and the, the outcome that they're trying to derive dictates the price they're willing to pay. And so from a pricing decision, this also uh, impacts everything. So I think that's kind of the core problem for the folks who have existing ICPs and they're, they're shared. I think we're already talking about the top 20% of, of companies. So if you're in there, like, congratulations, you're doing well, but it's not the 80% that I, I tend to run into. And I think those other people, the top 20% have, have different challenges. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, as we're talking, it just really underscores how complicated the pricing discussions are and who should be involved if you're just looking at, wow, we keep losing when, we, when we're discussing price, right? We're losing the sales cycle when, when we finally discuss price, which I could also make an argument that you have transparent pricing. So that's not a factor. But if we're losing based on price, is it because of the price or is it because we didn't demonstrate enough values because we don't have the right messaging to the right potential ICP? But the reality is that pricing does need to be adjusted over time. What are you seeing today? So we're in this just you know, shitty ass time for SaaS founders. And for those of you listening, I'm, my heart goes out to you. It's like just when you think it can get any worse than right, SVB happens and you're like, okay, cool. I can't even trust my bank with my money. So this is a time though, where specifically for marketers, this whole do more with less is like just mind numbingly um, frustrating for everyone. 
What are you seeing, if anything, in terms of maybe knee-jerk reactions to pricing? And if you're not seeing anything, what advice do you have for those that are, are staring down the current economy and with belts tightening quite a bit? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult time for everyone. We need a, a systemic financial collapse every 15 years. Whether you know, I just don't want have complacency. Everyone getting too laissez-faire with, oh yeah, my money's safe in my bank. You know, right. We don't need that kind of attitude around here. Everyone, everyone should be scared all the time. But no, I, I think you're, you're bringing up some good points. It, there's definitely different areas that we could focus on. So I think one thing is don't confuse a structural shift in the demand curve for just a incremental change in price sensitivity. Meaning, for example, um, you know when COVID happened, right? It wasn't the pricing of airline tickets and cruise ships, right? That like, it wasn't like a fault of the pricing teams on those, at those companies, the reason why they're like the demand collapsed. And so what we don't want to do is do a knee jerk. Oh, well, people aren't buying. So we're going to start cutting price because that's going to, it's going to do a couple of things. One is going to undermine your price integrity and your price positioning in the short term, you're effectively going to be undercutting your price like for what demand is left in the market, right? So there, there are companies, there are bright spots that are doing well that will still buy from you. And so you're going to lower price to try to appeal to a bunch of demand that has just gone away. And meanwhile, what you're going to do is you're going to cut the price on the people who, who are doing well and would pay you full price today. So it's going to have it's going to have no effect because you're not going to win those deals that just went away. And then the people who would buy from you are going to be ultimately less profitable. And you're going to do uh, potentially significant damage to your, your brand and price positioning. Talk about price positioning. I, I'm a big fan of, of positioning as a function of your pricing. Say we take the, the watch market, right? There's a Rolex and a Timex. Functionally, quite different, very different. They occupy very different price positions. If I'm Rolex, from a marketer's perspective, You'll notice one thing, price is never mentioned in a Rolex ad, right? Because if you have to ask what it costs, you are not the customer, right? So, so we think about this in our world, right? If you're, if you really believe you bring value and are pricing to that value, and all of a sudden you start having buy one, get one free sales on your, on your Rolex, like in time of crisis, like you're, you're going to just do massive reputational price positioning damage to yourself over the, over the longer term. So that being said, there's a bunch of different things that are going on simultaneously. It's not just recession, but we have you know high inflation. So those things are happening. I think going back to what I was saying before, for the deals we have coming to us, one, I, I realize this is there's two distinct but related things that tend to bite SaaS companies. One is that they don't have a discounting policy, and the other is that they don't enforce a discounting policy. And I used to assume that those were the same thing. It is helpful in these times to make sure that you have that. So tactically, uh, having that in place and making sure that you have a system for your, your sales team to follow that. But as I mentioned before, if you're really in sort of the all hands on deck sort of crisis mode, again, what you don't want to do is making... Uh, any negotiation based upon a single variable or a single dimension. I was helping a buddy one time negotiate for a job. If we think about it, a, a job is a, a you know, job offers a negotiation. You know, there's there's salary. So you know, he's like, well, I wanted 150, and they gave me 100, right? So you can imagine the negotiating goes, well, you know, can you do 150? Well, we'll give you 110. Well, how about 140? And and that's the negotiation no one wants to be in. But instead, it's like, okay, what what else is there? There's you know number of days of paid time off. There's contribution to uh, retirement. There's um, 
a bonus uh, percentage of uh, on the base, right? There's all these other elements. We could do the same thing with our our uh, offers uh, in in pricing, right? So you know, there's different elements we could play with. You know, payment terms, you know, priority position and implementation queue, uh, term lengths, the ability to get a case study or referrals, press releases or marketing support, right? So, and then what are the things that are you know, relatively inexpensive for you to give up, right? Is well, marginal cost of me giving you, say, our, our price metric is number of seats. If I give you an extra ten seats to close a deal, my marginal cost is is relatively low. Versus, say, if I want to give you a team, you know, priority customer support, right? That might be more expensive to me in in terms of out out pocket dollars. So, those are a few ideas, a few tactics. I think you know can help people stem the bleeding before you cut price. You know, the CEO should have a meeting and be like, look, what are the five things that we would do to to think about how to make our offer more valuable? Then before we go to just you know cutting our price all over the place. Yeah, and we've seen that in our own business. I mean, we're a services company as opposed to product, but you know, rather we didn't consider just cutting our price and cutting our fee. But what we did uh, all agree on and open our minds to was things like shorter terms, things like projects as opposed to full scale programs where we have less resources dedicated. You know, you extrapolate that and it ends up being you know full, but. We we approached it that same way too, as we got more creative with more of our packaging and our terms versus the price itself. That's worked really well for us. And now we're you know we're working with uh, our you know some of our customer base looks a little bit different, and we're doing projects when we necessarily wouldn't before, but we were able to do so without completely undercutting our value and undercutting our price. And by the way, we still have customers coming and paying our full retainer fees. So that didn't go away because to your point, we would have had these higher retainer clients. We would have brought them in at a much lower price just because we'd cut our pricing and lost out on all that revenue. So we've seen that in at work in our own business as well. For our listeners, do you have an example of it? Maybe it's a maybe it's a client of yours with product tranquility. Are there any SaaS companies that you see doing pricing and packaging really well? And that could be either, you know, currently that could be just over time they've ebbed and flowed and, you know, made appropriate changes. One company that I, I really respect in the pricing world is LinkedIn. So I think before we talked about uh, offer configurations as, as elements of, of packages. And so I think, you know, offer configurations in SaaS usually uh, take this form of what is called the good, better, best. So uh, the idea that you, know, you have a maybe a starter package and then maybe one for the you know the team based and then you know all the way up to enterprise right and again it'd be a firmer graphic breakup but uh, that would be uh, how we'd think about offering you know, different sets of value to different types of, of customer types. One of the reasons I really like LinkedIn is because they provide a good counter point to you know, good, better, best is not always the best way. To, <laughs> it's not always the best way to go. And I have some problems with, with good, better, best. Uh, generally, it works. Fundamentally, the, I, the label good, better, best implies a value judgment in and of itself. It's like best for who? Right, because if we if we really sit down and think about the set of features we and value we want to offer a particular customer segment, that's the foundation of how we build these bundles, how we build these offer configurations. And so, if I create this for you know your your team, right, and and you fit that profile perfectly, well, it's, that's the best for you, even if that's the you know the quote unquote good right. package. And I think LinkedIn shows this really well, right, where they have you know LinkedIn Job Seeker, LinkedIn Sales Navigator, LinkedIn Recruiter. 
it's not that LinkedIn Recruiter is better or worse than LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's just different. It's for a different uh, persona. It's for a different use case. And then underneath, they're able to do, I think, I don't think you could see it anymore, but they, at least they used to have a hierarchy, you know, underneath like LinkedIn Sales Navigator, then they would have like a good, better, best uh, version of that. But I think it really shows you know, how to, to really think about this you know, feature benefit value mapping all the way back to a, a customer segment, right? You, we touched on this earlier with the, it's not what you charge, it's who and how you charge. Understanding who you charge really at the foundational level, really understanding those core customer segments, you know, that follows through in so many of these pricing and packaging decisions is really like, who is we trying to sell this to? And then that dictates you know, the value that they're going to get. And that dictates the price we're, we can charge and, and how we're going to charge them for it. So I think another company, not so much because of the packaging, but because I really like the way that they think in terms of first principles is a GitLab. So GitLab, they're built on the open source tool, right? And then they, then they, you know, like a Red Hat, et cetera. Um, and then they, they sell, you know, uh, more paid premium versions on top of that open source project that, that is community supported. And what's really great about them is that they've, their CEO has been very transparent on their whole thinking behind all the decisions that they make. I get, I get very concerned in, in these with these type of questions specifically because people are like, well, who does pricing the best? And it's like, well, that can send people off into a really dangerous area because it's like, it's they're make you know, this is the problem with competition-based pricing because those companies are making very specific trade-offs upon what are the what are the metrics they're trying to optimize? Who is the customer they're trying to serve? What are the relevant specific relevant competitive alternatives that each of those packages is 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 targeted against uh, in in the market? Right. One thing I like about GitLab is they very clearly you know, say like, hey, here's what we're doing, and this is why. I, I've read uh, their. Your sort of magnum opus on, on how they come up with it. And from the outside, I have some disagreements with, with choices they made, but at least it, it shows you sort of the, the right way to think about this at a very deep level. Yeah, no, I get that. And, and I agree on the LinkedIn side of the house, by the way. This has been awesome, Dan. Is there anything else that we that you want to say that we didn't have a chance to tackle yet? One thing that really is concerning to me, you know, I, I think we, we talked about, you know, what is what are people doing now in this new macro regime? And I think you know, one of the areas I'd really like to have founders kind of walk away with or other marketers is that you know, monetization is often left on the side as this black box magic voodoo. And people don't understand. They think it's like, oh, it's just it's just this art. You know, and so any any opinion is better than any anything else. It's like it is an art and a science, and it's much more science than people uh, believe. And I think because it's it's not viewed that way, you know, there's people are are afraid to touch it. They're afraid to make progress. Look, there's there's people out there. Uh, go read GitLab's blog, or or you know, there's a bunch of other people I follow, or, or go read my stuff. There's there's ways to approach this, and there's ways to mitigate risk, and especially as we're in an era where you know, growth at all costs through just, okay, we're just going to grow via only acquisition. There's only three ways to grow a, a SaaS business. It's a acquisition, monetization, and retention. And I think we've sort of hit the limits of just pure acquisition, uh, growth by acquisition. Um, so this is a viable and gigantic growth lever. So I just encourage people, you know, don't worry about being perfect. You know, there's ways to mitigate the risk along the way. There's ways to, you know, build and prove and, and, and build that muscle inside your company. So I would leave your, your people with that. Love that. Thank you. Well, Dan, as I end every episode, I ask all of my guests if they have a favorite or signature toast to send us out. I have to go with the uh, slanche. 
What does that mean? I think it's just cheers in Gaelic, yeah? In Gaelic. Okay, there we go. Just cheers in Gaelic. I love that. All right, I will drink to that. Dan, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me. Likewise. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. Thanks again to Dan for joining me on SaaS Half Full. I love that discussion. I learned a ton. Hopefully, if you deal with pricing or packaging, you had a couple of aha moments and realized that this is a broader discussion, not just around should it be $12.99 or $13 on the nose. Always appreciate the listen. And until next time, bottoms up. Bottoms up.